This episode is sponsored by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for around 14 years now and continue to use to this day. And they are offering you, the audience, a 15% discount, not on one purchase, but continuously. And I'll give you that code in just a moment. But I want to do a product showcase on their new Atlas sneakers and boots. So I'm a big believer in the fact that footwear can either improve our health or break down our health. And the Atlas sneaker actually has a new foam system that disperses the body weight, whether just the body weight, whether it's a a vest and a gun, whether it's EMS bags being carried. And on top of that, they're lightweight, despite having the same protection that's required in the tactical space. So I have a pair of Atlas sneakers myself, and I can attest they're extremely comfortable. On top of footwear, of course, 5.11 offers a gamut of uniforms and equipment, whether it's plate carriers, backpacks, flashlights, you name it, they have it. All you have to do is go to 5.11tactical.com and use the code SHIELD15. That's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5 at 5.11tactical.com and you will save every time you purchase. And to learn more about the company 5.11 Tactical, You can listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 432 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute pleasure to welcome on the show Liz Carmouche. Now, Liz is a Marine veteran and was actually one of the first two women to appear in the UFC. So we discussed a host of topics from her training in the military, how it transitioned into mixed martial arts the underwater training she does with Deep End Fitness, and so much more. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Each five-star rating truly elevates this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, the audience. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Liz Carmouche. Enjoy. All right. Well, Liz, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Thank you. So my f- opening question is always, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? <laughs> uh, right now, I'm in San Diego, California. Brilliant. All right. Well, I like to start at the very beginning chronologically. So tell me where you were born and then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Okay. I was born in Lafayette, Louisiana, raised in Okinawa, Japan. I have one younger sibling. Uh, my parents are a little bit diverse in the sense that uh, my mother's from New York City. She was adopted, and my father. My father is also from Louisiana. All right, beautiful. Well, you you mentioned about um, Okinawa, so I spent a little bit of time in Japan. I worked there for fifteen months. So tell me what it was like being, you know, a young American girl growing up in Okinawa. It was definitely different. I mean, Okinawa is is where I identify as being home. It's where I connect with culturally. It's the background that I recognize more than anything. But that being said, growing up and and being that I'm Lebanese and Irish and Cajun, <laughs> and uh, by no means do I look like I'm Asian, it definitely made things a little bit difficult in wanting to speak Japanese and having an Okinawan accent, want to go out in public, and them just not recognizing that that is also where I identified as being home 
and kind of feeling a little bit of an outcast, but also coming to the United States and having no cultural connection to what they identified for their childhood. So I didn't fit in there either. So it definitely made things a little bit a little bit weird growing up and took some time to adjust into adulthood. Right. Now, were one of your parents military? Is that why you were in Okinawa? Or was this something else? Uh, my father was in the Air Force. My parents divorced when I was about five or six. And my mom stayed there to raise my sister and I. Ah, okay. Brilliant. So one thing that I think I'd love to ask people that have either been to Okinawa or yourself even lived there is one of the lesser known elements of health is the incredible longevity that the people of Okinawa have, you know, the native people. And, you know, when you kind of explore it a little bit, you look at the, the amazing diet, the, the playfulness of the culture. So what did you witness as far as the native Okinawans, you know, through your eyes, as far as health and longevity? Yeah, one of the biggest things that I identified, I think, is not is one just like their morning routines. They get up and it's stretching, kind of a loose warm up before they even start the workday. Um, another thing, the I'd say a really big thing is they identify not as being an individual, but the communal well being of everybody. So instead of having a healthcare where you're paying a fortune for yourself, it's what's going to benefit everybody long term. And I see that as being really diverse and, and different. Um, and then, like you said, when it came to diet and nutrition. Um, their, their meals are much smaller than American meals. And that was definitely one thing that surprised me when I moved to the States, when I ordered a small, what I thought was a small portion, and it would be the equivalent of an extra, extra large meal in Okinawa. <laughs> yeah. Same as uh, England. When I came from England, I, I thought I ordered a platter by mistake. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, they speak about, they eat to the point of being about 80% where I'd say Americans eat to the point of about being 110%. Um, so there's always kind of not a sense of hunger, but you're never exceeding that feeling. There's always, ah, I feel kind of full and that that's good enough. Not things, things aren't a lot of greasy food. There's not a lot of fried food. Things are just made differently. And there are a lot of foods that uh, now I've discovered as far as American standard are very different. What a lot of people don't like and identify as being disgusting that they contribute to long-term health. Things like natto and... Um, uh, I'm having a brain fart, <laughs> uh, and, and a few other foods that, that they have that Americans and you know I, I understand, but they don't really like them. And those are the things that they contribute to living to having living in their between 80s to 114 years old. Yeah, well, from uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like a lot of standards are obviously rice. There's a lot of fresh seafood, fresh fish, but also a lot of seaweed as well. Yes, absolutely. Beautiful. All right. Well, then, as far as athletics, you you know you ultimately became you know a phenom when it comes to to the martial arts. But tell me about your childhood age. What were you playing and doing at that age? Uh, see, as a as a child, I would say that I would, as far as being a hobbyist, ADHD in all terms. I mean, one day I wanted to be an astronaut. The next day I wanted to be a guitar player. The next day I wanted to be a deep sea diver. I was all over the place. The, the world was really a wonder to me, and I just wanted to try anything and everything. I always wanted to be an athlete. That was something that was always true to who I am. So I, I tried to dibble-dabble in one sport after another, a little bit of martial arts, but I, really sticking with any sport, it, the only sport I really stuck with, I'd say, was soccer. And that's because it was just the most available in every school system I went to. And everywhere that I moved in Okinawa, soccer was everywhere. So that's really what I stuck with the whole time. Right. Well, what about um, swimming? Because you're pretty close to the ocean everywhere on the island, aren't you? Uh, you think swimming, but not at all. Uh, <laughs> the nice thing about Okinawa is it has nets around most of the beaches. 
And that's as much as it is, it's to separate out any potential life that comes over the coral that could be a hazard to people, but it also restricts people from going out and stepping on the coral. Well, the benefit to that was as long as I can touch that net, I never have to worry about actually swimming. And there were flotation device, uh, devices, a lot of everywhere. So I really didn't have to swim. And then when it came to surfing, I had a cord, so I would just grab onto my board. I never actually had to learn to swim until I was an adult. Yeah, it's funny because we're going to talk about that with uh, Don and Prime. But yeah, it's interesting. Um, I actually got married in Guam. And it was it was oh, wow. funny because they had, I remember one of the resorts had stand-up jet skis on their resort. But you talked about flotation devices. They literally had, if you imagine, aquatic training wheels on these jet skis so that you couldn't fall off them. And I thought it was it was crazy, but it's probably kind of the same philosophy that you were talking about with flotation <laughs> devices everywhere. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right. Well, then Okinawa obviously is known as you know one of the home places of karate. So during your your time there, did you ever dabble in the martial arts? Did you did you kind of stumble across schools or anything? I did. Yeah. Um, just where we were living and affordability, I couldn't really dive into martial arts the way that I wanted to. I had an interest, but like I said, now looking back, it's one of those things where you look back and hindsight is twenty twenty. You realize that you should have taken advantage of the things that were available, like the appreciation of Okinawa being one of the top, top 10 dive spots in the entire world. Did I go deep sea diving? No, never. Um, and the same thing with martial arts is I tried some Okinawan karate and I tried some taekwondo, um, Aikido, things like that, but it was not for very long. I think I reached my yellow belt and all those before I got distracted by something else and then was trying tackle football and basketball and other sports. Right. What about exposure to the military while you're on the island? Did, did that have an impact on you for you to take your journey yourself? It did, yeah. You know, I lived briefly on base on an Air Force base for a few years and then we moved off base and that's where I lived most of my life was living off base. But what I did is I worked on base and I got to work on each of the bases, really experience all the branches and get insight into their work ethic, their personal lives, their lifestyles, everything that helped me start to identify where I wanted to go after I was finished with high school and then ultimately what branch I want to enter into. All right. So well then lead me through that then. So from you know graduating high school, what was your journey into the Marines? Yes, yeah, so graduating high school, uh, like I said, I really had a passion for soccer, and that's the sport that I identified most with because of the, the availability. Uh, originally, I thought that I was be going to become an officer in the military for the sole purpose of playing sports because I just couldn't really see in my future the possibility of going to college, both because I didn't think I could afford it, and two, it just was never really an interest of mine. So I thought, okay, well, I can go to school for the purpose of playing sports. That's something that will spark me to maintain good grades because the last thing you want is to get dropped from a scholarship. And with that not really seeming promising in my future, I thought about the military being another effort that I could put towards feeding into the soccer desire. But then again, found out, oh, okay, so you have to be an officer. So either way, I'm going to have to go to school. And that just didn't really seem to click for me. Uh, and the more and more that I got to know different people, I had some, some people that really highlighted and stood out to me. And they were Marines. They were the people that I respected the most. They just, to me, were every great quality that you could think of in professionalism, in being a parent, in idolizing what they wanted to do with their lives and the pursuit of that. And it just seemed like they were always growing to be the best standard of themselves. And the only people I saw doing that were Marines. And so that to me is like, wow, that's amazing to see somebody that can be a great parent, 
and can be a wonderful Marine, can be a kind person, but can also be as tough as you possibly can. And so the Marine Corps is where I started to see the most appeal out of all the branches. Right. Now, you ended up um, working on airplanes. Was that a deliberate choice or was that where you were told to go? It was in no way a deliberate choice, no. <laughs> um, when, I, when I took the test for the ASVAB, so you uh, take a test to join the military, and it's kind of a comprehensive test that can identify your strengths as far as mechanically, electronically, communication. And I scored a very high score, and I was told that I could do basically any job I wanted to in the military. So I kind of handpicked, okay, I'd like to do special forces. And then was told, well, you can't because you're a woman. Okay, well, I want to do, I want to work with animals in the military. Well, you can't because uh, you're a woman. And so time and time again, every job that I picked out, they said I was restricted because I was a female and I couldn't do it. So I finally just was like, okay, well, what, whatever job I can do that basically gives me a workout just by doing the job and where I'm constantly on my feet and going, I get to see new places all the time and I'm never home. That's the job I want. And what they told me is like, okay, well, you're going to be a technician. I was like, okay, cool. As long as it's nothing to do with electricity, we're fine because electricity and I do not combine well and something always seems to go awry when I do this. Well, lo and behold, I get out of boot camp and find out that I was going to be an electrician on helicopters. <laughs> well, has that changed now though? I mean, that was you know, obviously a decade ago now. Have they opened the, some of those professions up to women as well? Because I mean, it seems especially, I mean, I, I know that some of the special ops community when they hold the bar high so far... You know, it seems to have excluded women by by attrition, but I mean, some of the roles that you said, you'd think it wouldn't matter if you were male or female. Yeah, I know. It's great. They did actually open up the combat MOS as the ones I was most interested. They opened them up across the board. And one of the things I have appreciated is they haven't seemed to lower the standards for entry. And I don't think for any reason that they should. I think if a woman can't make it into special forces with the standards that have already been put, then they don't belong there. Um, I did try and go back in, but I was restricted because of the tattoos that I got <laughs> when I got out. So I wasn't allowed to go back in. And I thought about joining one of the other branches, but my heart was really set in the Marine Corps. And um, my career was kind of in a, in a weird standstill where I wasn't getting fights. And I still had a, a pocket of opportunity where I could go back into the military. But the decision ultimately was made when they said that I couldn't go back in with the tattoos I had. So that meant I had to go full bore ahead with my fight career. Well, that's so crazy because I actually got thrown out of a Japanese, uh, you know, bath, bathing house one oh, yeah. time because I had uh, tattoos. And uh, clearly this pasty buck teeth Englishman was part of the Yakuza because of the <laughs> the kanji that was on his chest. So did you ever have any issues with, with tattoos either when you were younger or when you returned to train? Oh, absolutely. You know, there was one thing that I always knew. And growing up in Japan, we knew that if you had any tattoos, and whether it was visible or not, that you restricted and you couldn't go into Ofudo. There were certain restaurants you couldn't go into, certain clubs. There was a lot of restrictions that you'd have because of that. And so I wasn't getting a tab, restricted myself from getting tattoos. And then when I went back, because my mom still lived in Okinawa when I was in the Marine Corps. And I went back and I was like, okay, well, the tattoos I have, I know I have to cover them up so that I can still go into places. But it had been so long since I'd back to, been back to Japan when I competed in quintet two years ago. I went back and I was trying to stay in shape for the competition. And so I was out in a park working out. I made the mistake and I knew better. I had my sweater on the whole time and then I took my sweater off. And at this point I'd had a whole sleeve on my left arm and I see an old man walk up and he gives me a look and I made a look and I'm like, Oh my God, I totally forgot. So I ran over, tried to put on my sweater and we did a broken conversation where he was actually super respectful and really surprised me. And that he's like, no, 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 I just don't understand. 
you know, back in my culture, we were always taught. And I was like, no, no, no. I grew up in Okinawa. I know better. I know I should have worn, I should have worn my sweater. Um, but he was really respectful and receptive and just wanted to understand why it seemed common ground now that people would get tattoos because you just didn't understand it. Whereas I was used to before the looks and getting kicked out of places for tattoos. So it's definitely a different response having gone back, I think 15 years after I'd been back to Japan and to have somebody, I think he was maybe 75 years old, come up and have a different approach than I ever experienced. And it was really cool. But I also know that I do, I still have friends there and they say the same things that they've tried to go to public swimming pools or ofudos or some places and they've been kicked out because they have tattoos. Yeah, it was it was very interesting from that. And like I said, I literally had, you know, I was born year of the tiger. So I had the tiger kanji and uh, I think that was it at the time. Um, but uh, yeah, but also I noticed for me personally, when I was in, uh, I was in Osaka and it was in 2001, 2002. And the older generation would literally sometimes we would get up from the subway and move to a different seat because I'd sat next to them. You know, I was like, oh God, that's a little rude. Um, so it's funny when people say, oh, you don't know what racism's like. I was like, well, yeah, be a gaijin in, in Japan and, and you'll definitely get a, you know, a view. But then the younger generation were very pro, you know, the West. And it's understandable, you know, the, the older generation, if they were very old, definitely, you know, were there when you know, America wasn't exactly a, a, you know, fellow country at the time. But what was interesting for me is when some of these older people found out that I was English, not American, it changed. And I think, again, because the Japanese have such a culture of manners and tradition, because the UK is known for that, too, and because we specifically, I guess, didn't drop the bombs as well, it, <laughs> it completely shifted. Same person sitting there, but the moment I was, you know, Igorisujin instead of, you know, American, all of a sudden the conversation changed. So I found that very interesting, too, with that kind of prejudice. Yeah, and I think too that um, the fact that immediately I was apologetic, I bowed my head, I bowed low, and I started speaking in Japanese, and he could place that my accent was Okinawan. I think that changed his perspective on everything because he was anticipating, he was trying to speak English, and he was anticipating an American that had no idea what was going on instead of somebody that was like, I'll leave the park, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to do that. Um, so it definitely changed. And this was only two years ago. I know that, yeah, back in 2001, no way. There's, I would have ran out of the park embarrassed if I <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, but I think that's it, though. It's, I think it's arrogant of you or me to go to someone else's country and expect them to bow down to the way we were raised. You have to have humility and respect for another culture, you know. And if they take their shoes off, or if they bow, or if you know whatever it is, cover up tattoos, you're in in their country. So I think it's very disrespectful to expect other cultures to accept you the way you are. Absolutely, yeah. There's definitely. One thing I was raised to believe is try and learn the culture and the language of any country that you go to. And that's something I even do now. Like I, I fought in Prague and I still made the attempt for weeks leading up to the fight to try and learn uh, Czech and to try and speak it to the best of my ability and learn the cultural differences. So I could, when I went into establishments, try and speak it and be as respectful and, and possible and try and learn the differences so that I could cater to that culture because it's not, it's not my culture. I'm going to another country. Um, they're accepting me and allowing me in there. I want to be as respectful for them and make the efforts. I always thought it was so weird to me when Americans would come to Japan and expect that they had to speak English and they had to do things their way. That made no sense to me. And I still don't understand when people do that. Yeah. Well, we didn't have much choice. Osaka, almost no one spoke English. So you had to, you had to learn the language. And I'm not saying I was 
any way, shape, or form close to fluent, but you had to at least learn the phrases to find toilets and food. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, then, speaking of traveling, um, so where did you deploy first with the Marines? I actually spent all my deployments in Iraq, particularly in Altakadam. Okay. So what I, I like to ask, um, I, I've, I kind of push this question a lot, or not push, um, pose this question a lot. Not being in the military, being in the first responder community, but never having served, you know, with the armed forces, I think the civilians get a very polarizing view of war. And I always kind of post this the same way. You either get the, you know, kill, let, excuse me, kill them all, let God sort them out view, or all soldiers are baby killers view, you know, and the middle ground is obviously what I hear over and over again when the men and women actually go to these places. There's a lot of atrocities, especially towards you know the the the, uh, the people of that country by the terrorists, by the extremists, and so you know I always ask people, was there something that you saw that made you realize that your presence there was actually you know doing good and, and protecting people? Because there's usually a moment in a lot of these people's stories where where they witness some of the horrors and they realize, okay, these these are some evil evil people that we need to hunt down. Yeah, I think there were, were a few different moments for, for that, like uh, for me. Uh, one, my first two deployments, I was basically just support. I was inside the wire and I fixed the helicopters with the intent of trying to allow them to go out and either do one of two things, either drop forces into zones or to pick up people that had been injured and return them to hospitals. Now, whether that was Iraqi citizens that were helping us, our own military people, our contractors, whomever it happened to be, it didn't matter when somebody got hurt. It was just to bring them. And so to see, to try and have that sense of urgency where you have less than a minute to fix a helicopter, to get it out there, to save somebody's life, always put that sense of urgency in perspective for me and understanding that it didn't matter who the person was. We were just trying to save lives. Um, I think the other thing was my third deployment when I finally actually got to go outside the wire with the lioness program and to see that, you have a blind eye when you're inside the wire and you hear explosions and gunfire and everything going off. You don't see it firsthand. You're just a sitting duck. When things come in, you're, you can't know what's going to happen. You're at the whim of, of life and just of circumstances and hopeful of survival. And when you go outside the wire, you get to see what return fire did and what mistakes even on their own part did. And what we were finding out a lot of times is that terrorists were freezing um, explosives, putting them in the ground. And then when the Iraqi heat would melt it, that's when those, those improvised devices would fire off and go into the base. There was never a person there. So if there's a mistake made and they happen to do it within a, a little town and it didn't go off correctly, it blew up that town. And what we ended up finding out is between those mistakes and us returning fire and oftentimes not seeing where that was going. Cause like I said, you're just trying to attack where those explosives are going off you see the devastation that was happening and the impact that we were having, they were having on themselves. And um, that was really surprising to me when I go out and I was being invited into somebody's home and seeing that they had built their home based with all the trash of that was left there. I mean, there were 50 cal rounds that they were using as planters for their, uh, for their flowers, uh, their roofs and their walls were made from, uh, trash from explosives that were left behind. And I just couldn't believe the impact of war unseen that we were missing out on. And mind you, all we were doing was support just trying to save lives. So we still didn't see the devastation that was being left in the wake. Yeah, well, I think that's an important picture to paint. And also what you just touched on is is the other 
part that's really not told very fairly, I think, in, in news in, in many countries, which is amongst these extremists are men and women, you know, trying to live their lives, trying to raise their kids, trying to feed themselves and their children and, you know, watch them grow up. And, and that part is kind of lost in, again, the extreme reporting of, oh, we're fighting the Iraqis, we're fighting the Afghanis. No, you're not. You're, you're, you know, these men and women are out there hunting the murderers amongst the civilians of Iraq or Afghanistan. Yeah, you know, and it, it really is lost. And one of the things going in, like I said, when I got to the Alliance program, is most often than not, the people were asking us just to leave. They didn't want us there. They didn't, whether we were helping them, protecting them, doing whatever, they just wanted to resume their lives and figure it out for themselves. And to have so many requests for us to just leave and let them go about their lives, whether that meant that they were going to suffer, they just want to do it on their terms was a huge surprise for me. And that was really difficult when I'm just trying to go in there and do my job and constantly having people come up and grab me like, please just go, just leave us alone. We just want to find our lives again. And that was just so difficult to see when you're trying, you think you're helping them and they just don't even want you there. Yeah. And you think a part of that was the pressure of if you were, they were being seen to help or seen to interact with you, that it might bring bad things to their family from some of the extremists? Uh, no, I think at that point where we were coming in and the places we were visiting, um, they weren't worried about the extremists. They just, we constantly had to go patrolling in those same spots over and over and making sure, because it was established areas for us, just making sure that nobody had been there. Um, and all they wanted was just for us to leave and just resume whatever lifestyle that they could have or recreate a lifestyle because they didn't have one. It was the extremists going in, trying to establish ground, and us trying to clear out the extremists. And it was never an opportunity for them to figure out what their lives meant without those two forces there. Very interesting. Well, you mentioned the Lioness program. What, what was the uh, intention of that? What did that look like? Uh, the Lioness program was an opportunity for us to be attached to grunt units, so the units around the first line. Um, what was initially happening in, our, in the first two deployments, at least the ones I went on, is it was particularly uh, you have people that would go in and they would enter into different camps. They would blow themselves up, but it was mostly just men. What started to happen is men would, they were supposed to be suicide bombers and the, they didn't do, they didn't hit the spot that they were supposed to. So their whole family was dishonored by them not being able to kill people. So what they started changing is they started allowing opportunities for their wives and for their daughters to return honors to the family if they themselves could take the place and complete the mission or do a different mission, they ended up being called black widows. Um, but the problem with that is in that particular culture is men are not allowed to approach and speak to women. You have to have men talk to men. They have to, a man would talk to their male representative, but never women. So what ended up happening is they were starting to get into places because no one could approach them. So they needed women to come in and be attached to allow them to talk to these women, search the women, be at different checkpoints so when women would come in they weren't running into these same issues so i was able to go on patrols and do those things and uh be outside the wire and kind of get a different perspective on things see that's fascinating i've never even heard that before that makes so much sense well with you you know serving for for several years were you was that where you discovered the martial arts or was it after you transitioned out uh it was a little bit while i was in so we did do mcmap training and there are some combative aspects of it, but I think it's really limited on what they can offer. But in that same tour, when I was at the Lioness program, I was really fortunate that the unit that I was attached to had um, some higher belts and that they actually, to help strengthen themselves and strengthen the unit, they did training outside of that. 
So they're actually, I want to say that one of them was a black belt. One of them was a brown belt in jujitsu. There's some of the new boxing. So they ended up showing us some things and I started really enjoying it. And I wanted to push myself and I wanted to be a higher belt within the McMap program, but also learn more about it. And they were offering that. So I excelled and was hungry for it and tried to learn as much as I could. And then two of the officers within my home unit had advised me to try and check out MMA and try and pursue that. They knew that I was always trying to push myself to new limitations, see what I was capable of doing, and always trying to exceed the standards before us. So I check out MMA. I think you'll love it. And um, so I started getting into it a little bit, but wasn't really able to go in depth into it because our unit didn't want to risk us getting injured. So it wasn't until I actually got out of the Marine Corps that I could give everything I had into martial arts training. Right. Well, what what um, what caused you to make a decision to transition out? And then how was that transition? The reason I ask that is a lot of military, a lot of police and fire, you know, when we've been in for whether it's a, a few deployments, whether it's a, a couple of decades, whatever it is, some some people do very well and transition right into the next thing. And some people struggle because they identified as a Marine, as a firefighter. So what what was the decision for you to transition out? And what was your own personal journey like? Yeah, there were a lot of reasons for my choice to to get out. Uh, one of which is I was in during Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and there was it was my unit in particular it was really difficult to be a closeted lesbian and not be open with that. Uh, the other thing was is I really identified as being a combat marine, and I wanted to do one of the combat MLSs. And at that time, we were restricted; we couldn't do that. And I really I hated being an electrician. I didn't feel like that's where my heart was. And I just, I really didn't feel like I was good at it. I did the best that I could, but where I identified was being a Marine's Marine and I couldn't do that to the best of my ability. And, um, with the possibility of actually being able to pursue MMA with, uh, a different perspective on wanting to go to school again, I decided the best course of action for me was to get out and to follow my MMA career and to go to school. But it, it wasn't easy. Like you said, I identified as being a Marine, my terminology, my approach to people, the way that I spoke to people was out of Marine. Thankfully I had friends that were still Marines and people, and they were in relationships too with civilians. So that definitely made it a lot easier to have a transition where they understood the military lingo just because of their counterparts, but they were also civilians. So they weren't really deep into it. So that helped the transition out. But I would say there was a few years adjustment point and the thing that made it the easiest to transition out was having found an MMA journey or MMA gym so early in my journey out of the Marine Corps. Right now, with that, obviously, some people start with jujitsu, some are kickboxers. Did you, with it being an MMA gym, was it that all-rounded style right from the beginning of your particular martial arts journey? Yeah, it was because I, I knew I wanted to do MMA, and I also felt I started right before my 26th birthday, a month before it. So I felt like I was behind the power curve in so many ways. And that I had a lot of catch up to do. So I didn't want to focus on just boxing or just jiu-jitsu or just wrestling. I knew that I needed to make up for all the time that I'd missed. So my first day I did, I think, six or eight hours of training. And then that was a lifestyle I maintained for years, trying to play catch up to learn everything that I could as fast as possible. Now, with training, I mean, I was a, a weekend warrior. I've been a punch bag for some really good fighters. And I say literally a punch bag, um, including like Carla Esparza and um, Felicia Spencer in the jungle here. Um, so some amazing female athletes that can whip my ass. Um, but, you know, I've seen the evolution of training. We, we talked earlier about uh, exercise physiology. So I've seen the strength and conditioning side. But also, interestingly, 
the uh, the sparring side. So when I was in California, I was at Shootbox and it was literally Fight Club. I mean, I got my eardrum perforated, my nose broken. I mean, you name it, my jaw dislocated. Oh, and wow. yeah, and it was when I look back now, you know, and I wonder why I got so many headaches. It's definitely part <laughs> of it. <laughs> but but you know, but now I hear you know um, Greg Jackson and some of these other great people that have been on here talking about how they're pulling on the reins of sparring and and realizing that you don't want to damage yourself in the gym. You want to save that that impact for when you're actually sparring. So with you having you know quite a long journey yourself, what has been some of the the change? What were some of the quote unquote mistakes? Strength and conditioning early in your career that, that now you do differently? Yeah, I think, uh, like you said, that was a big one is that hard sparring. Um, when I started off, it was that old school mentality and you're, you're just trying to fight to survive. And I definitely took a lot of impact to my skull unnecessarily in the beginning. And it definitely tests your heart and see if you really want to fight, but you're not learning much. You're just trying to survive and, and not get beat to death in there. Um, so that, that took a lot of time for me to understand and then also not really, I still had the old school Marine philosophy with things where if it's not really that broken, it still kind of works. If you can duct tape back together, just keep on going. And it took a few major injuries and surgeries for me to take a step back and understand that I needed to invest in my future. And that if I really wanted to be in the sport longer, I needed to do things like see a chiropractor, do ice baths, do cryotherapy, massages, acupuncture take rest days. And that I think was a big deal for me because up until that point, if I fought Saturday night, I flew back and I was back in the gym Monday morning. And I started to respect my body and understand that as much as I needed to get back to training and certainly learn from the mistakes that I made in the, in the fight and secure the things I did correctly. I also needed to take time off to let my body heal and rejuvenate so that I could be a hundred percent when I got back into the gym. But that took a few years and a lot of mistakes before I understood that. Yeah, well, I think I can relate to that. Just being forty six now, you know, the the older I get, especially in in our professions, the you have to be sensible with your training, but you have to have that rest and recovery and mobility and you know all those areas. Kind of, I think it's so easy to overtrain if you're a. I'm not saying I'm an alpha, but you know, if you're if you're an aggressive tactical athlete, you know, whether it's a military member or a first responder, it's easy to have you know the whole no pain. Um, no pain, no gain attitude when actually less is more is probably a more intelligent philosophy. Absolutely. You know, and I think that that's one nice thing now is I have a few fighters that I have up and coming and trying to tell them that like, look, I I've been in this sport as long as I have, because I learned from my mistakes, but please don't make the mistakes I made. I'm here to help you. And I don't want you to learn the hard way. And maybe you bounce back from it. Maybe you don't. Maybe a major surgery for you is the thing that ends your career and stops you from staying in the sport long when it's something that you could bounce back from or you could have avoided altogether. So I have a few fighters that listen and, of course, a few other fighters that are hard-headed and are learning the hard way. <laughs> yeah. Well, pain is the best teacher, sadly. Sadly, you're right. So almost exactly eight years ago, you and Ronda Rousey were the very first women in the UFC. So, you know, that's to be picked from two women of the entire planet to be in that particular show is an incredible achievement. So what, what were you doing right that got you to that point eight years ago? Uh, I think at that point I was just about graduating college. Um, so I was able to focus all my time in fighting and focus all my time in the gym. Whereas before I was splitting it between trying to keep my head in school and keep maintaining good grades 
And so I would spend the mornings going to school and the afternoons and evenings training. And there was no time off. There was no downtime. And then I finally started to have a different perspective on things and found a massage therapist that could sponsor me. And I could change how I was training and understood the differences in resting and, and seeing more and studying more. So when that opportunity came knocking, I mean, everybody knew that if I was offered a fight, I don't say no. I, my coaches may, may step up for me and go like, no, that fight's not right for you. But anybody calls me automatically go, yeah, I'll fight. I'll, I'll take it. And it was the same case with this is they had been calling around asking everybody if they would fight Rhonda. Everybody said no. And there was no hesitation on my part. And I immediately said yes. And then had to be like, oh, yeah, let me just ask my coaches real quick and make sure that's OK. <laughs> um, but they, they also agreed. And we all said the same thing. And there was no doubt in any of our minds that the answer was yes. Beautiful. Yeah, I remember watching it myself. It was, you know, it was incredible and a hell of a fight too. I mean, you almost had her and then, you know, ultimately she reversed it. But I think you you guys set the bar. I think Gina Carano in, um, what was, was it Invictus that she fought in? I'm forgetting the show she did. Strike Force. That's right. Yeah. So I think she definitely paved the way. But um, yeah, I mean, now, like I said, Carla and Felicia and some of these women I've been lucky enough to train with have, have been up there too. But um, yeah, I mean, it was it was a, a hell of a first fight just the same way as kind of Bonner and Griffin was for for the show mm-hmm. well I've got one question I'd love to ask you and again this is no this is not loaded in any way shape or form but one <laughs> of the conversations that I hear a lot recently is about transgender in athletics and you know my whole thing is I mean my my little boy here he's got several school friends that actually, I think they're all women transitioning to to well, girls transition to boys I work with a guy in my stunt show who's just transitioned to to a woman but when it comes to athletics specifically especially combat sports you know I'm always curious it's about you know, the the fairness the same way as when you look at the the most elite performers they're trying to squeak out that one or two percent uh, performance than their opponent and that's where you know some of the the uh performance enhancing drugs and some of those things go because they're just trying to you know turn that scale a little bit so without giving you my opinion whatsoever what is your opinion on a transgender man or what was a man you know uh, a woman being in female martial arts yeah i think that that is a really difficult area as much as i want to support the transgender community and I do in so many ways. I think that regardless of whether it's a man transitioning to a woman or a woman to man, I think once the body is fully developed and they have gone all the way through puberty, the the skeletal structure and the muscular structure is that of whatever gender that they were before the transition. So I don't even think it's fair for even if a, a woman transitioned to a man for them to compete in that appropriate weight class. And like you said, it's that one to 2% where they squeak by and all it would take is lowering the estrogen levels or increasing the testosterone levels to get that extra edge. I think that just like I believe that if people want to use drugs and they want to use uh, in whatever enhancements they need to, there should be a separate organization that allows people to do that. And then for the Ozos that want to fight clean, we can fight clean in the same sense that we should start adapting and allowing for those people that are transgender for them to compete in organizations so it is fair based on where they're at now. 
Beautiful. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you completely. And I think that, you know, you went to, to college and did, um, kinesiology. I'm an ex phys grad myself. And you just learn about some of the anatomical differences for, you know, the African American, you know, bone structure tends to be more dense than, let's say, you know, an older Caucasian woman. And, you know, the, the male and female, from what I understand from my academia, was the the legs are pretty much on par male and female but when you look at upper body there is a you know a different difference so you know i'm thinking about striking power and you know is is that is that going to cause issues is that fair and also the bone structure you know is is a is a a male originally male punch to a female skull going to create an issue that might cause injury or death you know and it just it might be an anomaly but it's something that we have to have that discussion to prevent that happening. And like you said, I think the absolute answer is to have a, spe- a separate group where those you know, male and female athletes can fight each other and then they're on par. Absolutely. And I think that that's going to take some time, but that's also uh, developments in any sport that are going to take time. I think in society itself, identifying and acceptance of the transgender community has taken some time and still will. And I think the more that society accepts that the and identifies transgender is actually being a part of our community, the more that we'll be able to make an, an organization that will fit for the lifestyle that works best for everybody. Absolutely. I think the adaptive community is a perfect example. When I was little, it, it was literally they were still being placed in special homes. And now we have this amazing adaptive sports community. So I'm not saying that, you know, that's the transgender and, and, you know, loss of limbs or paraplegia are on par with each other. But again, it's it's a unique group that you band together and they end up having this incredible competitive journey of their own. I absolutely agree. Right. Well, then you mentioned about um, injuries. So another thing being an older athlete myself is were there any, uh, whether it's movement practices, whether it was, uh, you know, some sort of surgical or medical um, procedure or... Um, you know, therapy, were there any things that you found worked well that surprised you when it came to rehab after some of your injuries? Yeah, I would say that there, there were a few different things that worked really well for me. Um, one would be the a strength and conditioning program that we started implementing that kind of had mobility movements similar to gymnastics really helped me strengthen my body equally. And I felt like that's the best that I've, I've felt. And then another big thing has been deep in fitness and underwater torpedo league doing strength and conditioning underwater and having that that deep immersion where it's flushing out the lactic acid it's pushing your body being that you're in the water and you're still stressing it and you're doing it without having oxygen and you're doing it in the sun but in a whole different level where it's also healing you at the same time that has has i feel like has really kept me in the game and allowed me to keep pushing into my now 11th year of training and fighting yeah, well, that's fascinating because I had uh, Don and Prime on, who are your fellow Marines and founders of uh, Deep End Fitness. But some of the other things that they talked about made perfect sense. The actual uh, temperature of the water, obviously, with you guys being in California in the wintertime, especially being colder in the pool. But also, as they mentioned, the the pressure of the water almost having a kind of healing effect, almost like a, like a weighted blanket would. Yeah. I mean, there are times where I knew that I, I was exhausted in the pool and coming out of the pool and I knew that I gave everything I could and I get out of there and I feel refreshed. Now I'm still tired, but it's in a whole different way. It's really hard to explain, but the fatigue that my muscles feel aren't a strain where I don't feel like if I go to the gym, I couldn't still put on another workout. 
Whereas there are other times where I leave the gym and I feel exhausted and I feel beat up. Like, I don't know how I'm going to finish this week. I don't ever leave the pool questioning if I'll be able to finish the workouts of the day or the week. I feel like a reset. Like I certainly fatigued my body, but I still have more to put out and I can still continue on. Now, what about breath work? I mean, not breath, the breath control or the, or the, the need to control your breath while working underwater. How is that carried over to the cage? It's carried over a lot um, because like you said, that having that breath control, if you make a mistake when you're breathing and you're underwater, you're going to ingest water. So not only do you have a respect for the water, but you have to learn how to manage and control your heart rate. And even under, under the most stressful of situations and duress to calm and lower your heart rate, but you still have to have an output. You still have to work. Otherwise you're going to drown. I mean, theoretically they're, they're there to rescue but there's always that that thought in the back of your head. So you have to learn how to control every situation. And that's no different in the cage. There are certain situations you get into where you could give up at that moment or you can freak out and fatigue yourself or you can learn to lower your heart rate and step away internally in the situation to get a different perspective to be able to continue on and fight through that situation. Well, you mentioned as well that you didn't swim much in Okinawa because of the nets. So was the deep end fitness your first true immersion into that kind of swimming? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, the other thing was too is I sink, which has so many benefits when it comes to deep end fitness and to underwater torpedo league. But I could never figure out why I struggled so much to swim at the top of the water and why everybody else would have it just easily come to them and why I couldn't tread water. And it wasn't until Rick and Prime and Dawn um, helped me understand that I was actually negatively buoyant. And so I sink to the bottom of the pool. That's why I struggle to stay above water. But the great thing is, as far as the strength and conditioning program, that's a huge benefit. I just sink to the bottom with a full breath of air while everybody else has to let out some, some air to get down there. And I can have a lot more output at the bottom of the pool than other people. But previous to that, I could never understand why I couldn't swim. And it wasn't until their help to help me make some tweaks, I could understand how to swim above water and not just at the bottom of the pool. I can relate 100% because I'm a sinker too. So I've, I've never broken a bone. I had a bone bruise, the most painful thing I ever did, punching someone in the gym. But um, yeah, and so I'm skinny. So when we do lifeguard training, when I was a lifeguard years ago, you know, they'd, they'd make a beeline for me. Oh, there's a small guy. He'll be easy to tow. But, <laughs> but my legs would be straight down. So they'd be basically towing me sideways the whole time. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, and I give back weights in diving classes too. I'm not going to need these, mate. You're good. Just uh, <laughs> I'll just eat the tank. So beautiful. Well, then another thing that um, I know you've done on the side is obviously own your gyms as well. So being in California, being a gym, what has 2020 been like for you and your business? Uh, it's been horrific in so many ways. Um, it's been really hard to navigate what's all the restrictions have been placed on us and trying to open up it, particularly when we do have so many professional and amateur fighters in boxing, Muay Thai, Jiu Jitsu and MMA that still want to compete, but we can't open up to allow them to do the training they need. Um, and then most of our business isn't from our professional and amateur fighters. It comes from just our common members that want to get a good workout. And that's what we have the biggest restriction on is allowing them to open up. Finding places in San Diego for you to work out outside is, is kind of difficult without paying extra fees. And when you're already at a deficit because of COVID, paying extra money to be able to utilize a parking lot to maintain social distancing has, has definitely put a huge toll on us. And I think that we've had to concentrate more on our, on our fighters than we normally do just because they're the ones that can actually train because they're professional athletes. 
Yeah, I know one of the most heartbreaking things I've seen is uh, Jocko Willink. You know, he's obviously very successful in San Diego based with Victory MMA. But, I mean, they have a beautiful, huge space. And they, he was just walking around with his camera, showing it empty. And he was being very optimistic with it, saying, well, we're going to do repairs and upgrades. But that's something that I've, you know, talked about right from the beginning is, to me, one of the sides of the conversation, the other side is obviously isolation and slowing the curve, all that stuff. I get it. But the other side is building resilience of our fellow Americans. And we can't do that if we keep all the fast food restaurants open and close down all the gyms. It's, it's insanity. Yeah, and that's one thing that's been really surprising to me, um, especially because a lot of the the people that come to us for training are veterans with PTSD and injuries. And one of the things that I've noticed often is that they are taught to seek out an MMA gym so they can find that camaraderie and have an outlet for their anger and for everything to process. And I know there are some veterans that I've reached out to since the restrictions have been put in place and we're not allowed to have our gyms operating. I've reached out and I haven't heard back from them. So the only thing that I could think is the worst of what we would ever want from them and that they probably, some of them have taken their lives. The other thing is we've also had just our common members that are gone in there and the same thing that they've been medically advised to go in for the purpose of losing weight and for their health. And now they've gained a hundred pounds back and they're back on that road of I'm going to die and I need to be in the hospital. You know, you have to, yes, we social distance, but at the same time, what we're doing is not just for our professional athletes, it's for our members' mental health and physical health. And they can't achieve that by working out on their own. They weren't doing it before. It's certainly not going to be different during COVID. And we can't provide that to them. And I've seen so many people become ill because of it, yet our fast food restaurants are open and have long lines of business leading out the door. Yeah. Well, and I think an important thing you mentioned about the uh, you know the veterans, but I think just anyone in general, what's so healing is that sense of community. I think that's what we touched on earlier about transitioning out of the military is people lose that tribe, whether it was their Marines, their fire station, whatever it was. And I've seen the healing effect of, you know, an MMA gym, a CrossFit gym, you know, a, a, a Spartan race, whatever it is, but that community is so healing. So you've taken away the ability to exercise, you've taken that community away. And so I think, you know, as you met, as you said, there's an unseen death toll. And, you know, this ripple effect is going to happen, I think, for a long time after. But by forcing everyone to completely stop, not just, you know, sensibly for a few weeks and then start getting everyone open, you know, like New Zealand and Guernsey and some of these places I've talked about in the past. But, you know, California, London, all these places where they're still locked down to this day. If you added up that unseen death toll, the mental health issues, the domestic abuse, the the heart attacks and strokes that never went to the the hospital because the people were scared, you know we're we're totally offsetting. I think the the death toll from from COVID, real COVID numbers, and I think that's something we're going to look back and and realize that you know some of these politicians made horrendous decisions that cost a huge amount of lives. Absolutely. And I don't think that we shouldn't take steps necessary to try and prevent COVID as much as possible. But we also have to have an appreciation for the people that need this this for the sake of health, mental, physical, and those combined. And we're not thinking about those people. And I, I know as being a gym owner and reaching out to these people and the depression that's happened, the lives that have been lost, the sicknesses that happened, those numbers are not being considered and it's having a huge impact and it will, I think, down the road for many years. Yeah, I think so too. Well, you mentioned that um, before we start recording that your wife uh, works with dogs and veterans. So tell me about that. 
Yeah. So she's been a professional dog, dog trainer for, I want to say over a decade now. And even when she worked for a previous company, one of the things that was close to her and that she did is she worked with veterans. It's always people that she's connected with. And she really believed in giving her time to help train dogs for veterans so that they could now, whether it was military veterans or law enforcement, people on the front line, essentially. And she really believed in helping them to save two lives, give a, a dog a home, give it a sense of purpose, and then give a veteran um, somebody that could help them. Because one of the things that helps is having that, that need to have to take them out every day, to take them for walks. So they have a mission, essentially, of their own. And having that dog and having somebody to take care of helps them. And then having a friend that helps them along. And seeing the impact of, of the lives. I mean, she's working with a veteran right now. She's just starting out this program of her own. She's really wanted to create healthy dogs. Is one of the things that she saw before is it was great that they were taking dogs from shelters, but they weren't looking at their physical well-being. And so down the road, you'd have a dog with hip dysplasia that's supposed to be helping a veteran. And now the veteran's out of dog and they're back in the same place that they were before. So what she's doing right now is she's taking dogs and she's breeding them and making sure and testing them to be at the top 90th percentile health wise so that the longevity of the dog is also going to secure the longevity of the veteran and their health. And so she's training them, breeding them and doing a really great job with these labs and has one in now that she's training for a veteran that has multiple needs. And it's really cool just watching and being privy to it and now getting to see it because she was before one of the trainers that helped me get my service dog but now getting to see her start this program up and seeing what she's doing from the ground up and from the beginning, but doing it on such different perspective has been amazing. And I'm excited to actually see where the, all this program is going to go and how many veterans she's going to be able to benefit. That's amazing. Now you mentioned about having a service dog yourself. Did, what was your mental health journey that led you to, to getting a dog? Uh, I think, uh, like I was saying, as much as I was transitioning out of the military and it may certainly help that in so many ways, um, when I had a surgery that laid me off for a year, I didn't realize just how much MMA made such a huge point in my life and kept me healthy. But what it also did is it just distracted me from some of the things that I was mentally injured from in the Marine Corps and the PTSD that I had. All it did was just quiet that. I mean, when you're in the gym for six to eight hours a day, it doesn't really give you a lot of time to sit back and to really take that moment to for introspection to see where your deficits are and to see where your weaknesses and the things that you have going on. And when you have a year off to do that, it definitely makes you approach things differently. And I was thankful that she and I were friends at the time and she saw the things that I necessarily didn't and had suggested that maybe it would be great for me to have a service dog. And at the time I really didn't think I was deserving or that I was needful of it. And as she started to point out some of the things in my life, I, decided to seek out mental health for myself and realized that I actually did need a service dog. And I just was not aware of the things going on that I felt like were normal and that had just been a part of my life that actually weren't. And a dog helped me out so much because like I said, you have somebody else you're responsible for being that I need to make sure it's not just my life, but I have to take care of the dog. I have to walk them. I have to feed them. I have trained to maintain. And then you also have a friend every day that cares about what you're doing and they're taught to notice when you're having these signs of aggression and you're having things like anxiety and they nudge you or they do whatever it is that they're taught to that helps you work through that situation. And, um, so because of her is when I was actually able to notice that I actually need a service dog and it made a huge difference in my life. 
Yeah, well, I'm so glad I asked you that because there's a couple of things that, that you mentioned that, you know, I've seen over and over again, including in myself. So one was the injury. I had a back injury that took about five months to heal. But you also go from, you know, Liz, the, the Marine, Liz, the MMA, you know, near champion to lying in the bed, you know, feeling just, just worthless in a, in a way. But then the other thing that I think is totally underrecognized in your profession, in my profession, is the busyness. I see a lot of men and women that fill all their time, whether it's with training, whether it's um, you know taking overtime in the police and the fire, and then they don't realize, just like you said, they're just filling filling space so they don't have to stop and actually acknowledge what's going on in their head. And when we get hurt, not only do we feel lesser because of you know our inability to use our body not only we pull again from our tribe whether it's our gym whether it's our marines but also now you're forced to be alone with your thoughts and so that can create a perfect storm that can be deadly for some people so i think it's very important that that you know that you did get a dog it's amazing that you had that recognition yeah and it is because it's like you're saying i didn't realize just how reactive i was to the things around me uh, that to me was, I was in such a ghost state always of trying to get to the gym and get to training sessions that I didn't realize certain things that would trigger me and set me off and they were bothering me. They were causing me anxiety. It didn't even seem like anxiety to me because I was so quickly trying to get to the gym and train that those things were left in the wake. And when you're, when you have time to, and you're not rushing, then you really start to know those things and get a different perspective. And then when you have other people that are like, yeah, you're, you're not supposed to react that way and you shouldn't, <laughs> you shouldn't have anger in these situations and um, be fearful there isn't somebody outside your door with a gun, things like that. When you start to notice that and people point it out and like you said, and when you feel worthless because you put so much worth in training and now you have to rely on other people, um, that really changes things for you and you start to, and I was definitely getting into a dark state and she pointed at these things out and helped me out at a crucial time in my life where had it not been for that service dog, I could not be here today. That's amazing. Well, I'm glad you married her. <laughs> so, <laughs> <Me> well, <laughs> well, another another holistic healing element that I use myself religiously is CBD. And I know that's something that you, you, know, you kind of shout from the rooftops as well. So tell me about when you first discovered CBD and your own personal experience of it. Yeah, I had a few friends that had re uh, recommended CBD. And I was one of those people that was not educated in CBD and wasn't really aware of it. When I thought CBD, what always came to mind was THC. And I, I was always told, I'm like, one, I'm a professional athlete. I'm not looking to do anything that's going to compromise that. So I do not want to use CBD. I'm also not the type of person that drinks. I certainly don't want to get high all the time. So I don't want to use CBD. I'm sorry, guys. It's just, it's not my thing. Um, but then it came to a point where you were going through a heat wave in San Diego and it had been four days where I maybe got three hours of sleep in that four day span. And when you're trying to train, you're trying to work, sleep is crucial. And it was just so hot. And I was dealing with other things that I was like, okay, I need something to sleep. This is, this is going too far. My body hurts. I'm grumpy. You know, everything comes from not sleeping. So I finally took my friends up on the, on, on the idea, did a little bit of research from CBD and decided to take the risk and, and try it out. And then realized just how ridiculous I was to think that CBD was going to get me high. <laughs> and uh, immediately, that was the first night that I slept eight hours. I, in, in a four-day span, I finally got a whole night's rest. And not only was some of the aches and pains that I had that had nothing to do with the lack of sleep, they were resistant before that lack of sleep, I started to notice that it felt better. 
And some of the anxiety that I was dealing with with PTSD was eased and um, inflammation went down. I was able to sleep better at night and really it was like, okay, there's something real to this. I, I need to, to do a little bit more research, understand it better. And this is something I need to include as an absolute necessity as a supplement in my life. Yeah, well, one thing that scares the hell out of my profession is the same that scared you. So it's the workplace drug test for us, obviously, the you know, athletic, athletic commission for you. But again, that fallacy that, you know, CBD is THC and you're going to fail a test. Now, obviously, dirty CBD that hasn't been, you know, made properly might make you fail a test. And I use a company called Red Pill Medical myself. But, you know, the one you use, is it something that's third party tested that you trust even with the, the testing for your MMA? It is. Yeah. Um, I had just swapped to a company called enjoyable CBD and it was my first time using it in this last fight. And prior to that, um, I just, I was really doubtful. And it's one of the things that I would do is my last month of training is I was cut out CBD use because I just didn't want to risk the possibility that I would fail a drug test. It just, I just was like, well, you know, just in case it may not be worth it. And one of the things that helps so much that last month of training is CBD use. Like it really is so important, a, a part of my lifestyle in the reduction in inflammation and being able to help me sleep. And this is the first time where I took that risk and I used it all the way up to fight day and I didn't fill the drug test. So it's like, oh, I feel great. It really made a huge difference and it was safe. Okay. Okay. I can do this now. <laughs> Yeah, but I think that's it's so important for people to hear because they are so scared. And I get it because the propaganda is horrendous. You know, it's the devil's lettuce. No, it's not. <laughs> not even close. But but there are, you know, now there's CBD everywhere. You can buy it in the gas station. So it's important that people understand that clean CBD is completely safe as long as you go to the source that you trust. So whether it's um, enjoyable for you, whether it's red pill for me, these are companies that, you know, can, can absolutely... Um, you know, hold their hand on their heart and say, no, you, you, I promise you this is third party tested. We'll send you the results. Here's the spectrostomy. Oh, I think I said that word wrong. Anyway, the analysis. <laughs> um, I think I got spectron, spectrum something and colostomy together, which sounds like a horrendous. <laughs> but anyway, my point being, you know, that, that once you can trust it, then hopefully we can appease some of the fears. But the healing effects of CBD that I have seen in myself, in my family, and some of my friends, it is such a powerful supplement, you know, and it's completely holistic. The cannabinoids actually exist in your body. You're basically bolstering them. So the more people like you that come out, especially in, in a sport that's held to such a stringent level when it comes to testing, that's a very powerful statement that you took it all the way and you were absolutely fine. And I agree. And that took me a, a long time to do. You know, I was nervous about even mentioning the fact that I use CBD, but it was hard not to because the people that recommended it were veterans and service veterans that had been injured physically and mentally. And I saw their ability to not have to use opiates. And that was really honestly like the biggest tell sign for me is that they didn't have to use opiates to fight the pains that they were having. That it was easing their anxiety and helping their pain. And that spoke volumes to me because these are veterans that I had served with that I trusted and I knew what they, the standard that they held themselves to and what they had endured. So I was like, okay, well, if they can do it and if they trust us, then I, I think that there's more that I need to learn about this product. And then my own use, I, there was, I was like, okay, people need to know about that. There's no way if you can not use ibuprofen, because especially in the military, that's all that's preached on you. Use Motrin, ibuprofen is going to cure everything. And the amount that they give you is devastating on your liver and on your kidneys and on your organs, your teeth, everything. You're ingesting a product that's just destroying your body. 
when you ingest a product that says, okay, you can take this, it has these three benefits, but these possible 57 things that could hurt you, that really doesn't seem to make sense in my mind. And CBD, you're like, okay, well, you could possibly have a bad reaction in this way, but here are the thousands of health benefits as opposed to one possible negative. You can't really... You can't really have skepticism about something when you have information like that. Yeah, no, exactly. And another uh, company I align with is Thorn that makes the supplements. I know now they are actually the official supplement of the UFC. Did you ever take their stuff? No, I didn't, but I am familiar with Thorn. I've, I've seen a lot of good things about that as well. Yeah, I mean, I'm not trying to do a shameless plug, but they're another one that, you know, again, third-party tested, completely trustworthy, and, you know, the, the athletes now in the, the UFC are taking them and not failing drug tests. So there we go. <laughs> All right, well, then um, transitioning on, you just beat uh, Diana Bennett, um, and, you know, so you're riding a win streak right now. Um, what at 36 years old is keeping you at that high level where you're still performing when a lot of people in, you know, especially in combat sports tend to kind of start transitioning out by this point? Uh, I think it's, it's a few different things. It's, um, one, I'm not trying to do hard sparring and get my head beat in, get my body destroyed. Um, you know, it always has been important to me in repetition and drills is I would much rather fine tune a skill set and do it a thousand times and have it be muscle memory, then try it once, get nailed in the head, destroyed in the body, and never actually concretely accept it. So drilling for me has always been a very important part of my lifestyle, but more so now. I, I do spar, but I'm certainly not trying to go 100%. I want to say that for the fight. And as difficult as that really was for me coming from a background where hard sparring was something you did more than anything, uh, to kind of change that perspective, and then to do things like making sure that even though I hate it, doing ice baths and having CBD every day and doing massages, acupuncture, chiropractor, that before not only was it not financially possible for me, but I didn't see the importance of making that financial investment in my future. Now I really do. And I make sure that if it means I have to work an extra shift so I have the money to do it, that I do that so that I can afford to do those things to help my fight career. Right, we well, said an extra shift. Obviously, like you said, the the gyms have have, uh, have been shut down by the state at the moment. So, what else are you doing as far as uh, you know, profession? Uh, so, one of the other things I do is I'll drive to people's homes and do personal training one on one for them. And whether that means that we're doing masks, whatever it happens to be, I'm now mobily training people <laughs> so that I can stay in business. I'll do seminars, I do signings, anything and everything possible to try and get a scent for my family. Beautiful. All right, well, Liz, I want to transition some closing questions so I can you know, let you get on your way. Um, the first one I love to ask, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be related to what we've discussed today or something completely different. Uh, yeah, actually, uh, Deep in Fitness um, actually just came out with a book and it's free. It's a workbook. It's one that Don and Prime came up with. And having been able to see the benefits of not only what they do in the pool and the health benefits physically for that, but mentally what they're doing as well, that is a wonderful workbook. I think that even if you are not a combat sport athlete, even if you don't like swimming, it's not just for that. It's about understanding yourself more and working through the difficulties in your life and applying it and changing everything. And that has been a phenomenal book in my life. Fantastic. All right. The next question, is there a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? 
Yes, I think that uh, there's a few people I, I would recommend. I think that uh, Charles Martinez, he's my, my Muay Thai and MMA coach, and he's a veteran himself. He's now a coach in MMA and Muay Thai, and he has a very unique perspective because he also does holistic medicine as an acupuncturist. So I think he's a pretty cool person to talk to in seeing that side of things as well as being a veteran and seeing the adjustments for veterans coming out of the military and then also having to see the, the different athletes that come through pursuant of uh, amateur and professional career. Fantastic. Actually, another one that I think one of your fellow deep end coaches, Dominic Cruz, I need to get him on one day too. There you go. Yeah. Beautiful. All right. Well, then um, next question, what do you do to decompress these days? Uh, these days, uh, <laughs> I now have three goats, three fainting goats. And while <laughs> I haven't had that answer yet. <laughs> <laughs> While I do my best not to scare them, I can't say that it isn't hilarious when they do faint. Um, these ones in particular don't faint very often, uh, so it's not as enjoyable as I would like it to be. But they're so sweet, and that was something I never could have seen happen. I, I didn't realize they would be more pets. I thought livestock, but they actually like to cuddle, and they like to be pet and get hugged and things. So that has been really cool, so spending time with them. Um, playing games with my son because he likes to run around with the goats, and he doesn't try and scare them. It doesn't work anyway. But he loves just going out there and playing with them, spending a lot of time with my family. And then also shooting my bow and arrow has been probably one of the biggest things I do to decompress. And is archery something that's new for you? Uh, it, I wouldn't say it's new, but it's something now that I have the ability to actually access. Uh, before, something I'd have to drive out of my way to do. And um, it was always you had to pay a fee to go there. Now I just set up a target in the backyard and I can go out there and shoot the target as much as I want. So now I can actually have fun with it. Brilliant. It's just the reason I ask that. I see a lot of people, especially veterans, that are getting into archery now, and I think that having to be present and that breath control again seems to factor in a lot. Oh, absolutely. Because trying to pay to go to a range, especially during COVID, is uh, I know in San Diego it's really difficult to find ammunition. It's expensive and it's difficult to even just get access to. Trying to get to a range with COVID and those prices again is a little steep. So this is something that you can have that's much cheaper. Yeah, I need to guess. I actually um, went to Anaheim, see some friends in my old fire department and went to a range and it was great. I mean, they had ammo, which is more than I can say for a lot of Florida, which is weird. But um, we were only allowed 100 <laughs> rounds for the two of us to share. So it was quite oh, a wow. short <laughs> quite a short session. <laughs> but uh, beautiful. All right. Well, then before we go to, to where people can find you, what, do you have another fight lined up or are you still waiting for that to be scheduled? I'm waiting for it to be scheduled. Um, Bellator last week or the week before just came out with their projected roster um, and fight schedule. So I'm hoping that by this summer I should have a fight lined up, hoping to get a phone call any day now. I stay ready just on the off chance that somebody else falls out and I can take the chance or they put together a fight card and decide they want women on it so I can jump on as soon as possible. So I'm hoping by summertime I should have a fight. Fantastic. All right. Well, then for people listening, if they want to learn more about you, want to reach out to you or your wife's um, dog program, where are the best places to find you online? Uh, so the best places to find me online would be on my Facebook. It's just Liz Carmouche. It's official. Uh, on Twitter and on Instagram, it is I am Gorilla. Brilliant. All right. Well, Liz, I want to say thank you so much. I mean, it's an honor to have you on the show. Obviously, I've watched you since... Uh, the, the first, I'm sure I saw you probably even before UFC in, in um, 
uh, you know, the previous fights. But um, to, to get to talk to you now and to hear your journey through the military, your childhood in Okinawa, there's just so much, you know, to that. And then again, you know, the mental health element, I think is very important. So thank you so much for being so generous with your time and coming on the podcast today. Thank you so much. It's been great talking to you today.